0: Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Now, if you'd like to listen to any of the previous episodes, you can go to the 3CR website. It's under 3CR, Radical Philosophy, and just look for the Philosophical Poodles. Now, I've usually got one episode that's audio on demand, that's up for seven days, and there should be another four podcasts, and also... For any of the remaining 50 or 60 interviews that I've done since Radical Philosophy began, you can go to the Facebook page. Once you're actually on to the 3CR website, there's a link on the right-hand side, so you can go to the Facebook page and access all the interviews. I'm speaking to Lucy Main about Philosophical Republicanism. Lucy, what would your definition of philosophical republicanism be?
1: So the first thing I want to clear up is that just as the Australian Liberal Party is pretty far removed from the liberalism of philosophy, except maybe on economic issues, the republicanism that I'm interested in has next to nothing in common with the Republican Party in the US. So the republicanism that I'm interested in is a political theory that claims that the good we as a society should be aiming to maximise is freedom from domination, where domination is the ability of a person or group to arbitrarily interfere in the choices available to another person by altering the range of options available to someone, by changing the payoffs of the available options, or by assuming control over the outcomes which will result from the available options. To a Republican, the mere ability of someone to interfere in such a way is problematic, even if they never exercise that ability. What matters is not just that someone doesn't interfere with you, but also that they can't, and that they know that they can't, and that it's common knowledge that they can't. This is important because where domination is a factor, people will often modify their behaviour to avoid being interfered with. The classic example of this is a slave with a kindly master who never punishes the slave and allows the slave the liberty to pretty much do as he or she pleases. The slave can be said to have a lot of liberty, but nevertheless, the fact that the master could, if he desired, revoke all these privileges is going to affect the way the slave acts he or she is highly unlikely to ever act in a way that could jeopardise his or her master's kindly disposition. Furthermore, even if the slave is confident that the master is truly kindly and would never mistreat her, even though this is legally permitted, the slave must always be aware that if the master changes, perhaps through death or a forced sale, then the slave's circumstances could change in an instant. Due to this possibility, even the most well-treated slave could never feel secure. The origins of Republican political theory are in challenging the absolute power of monarchs. The motivating concern was that that a ruler with absolute power, even one who was benevolent and an excellent ruler, nevertheless left his, because let's face it, it nearly always was a him, left his subjects unfree in an important way, because everything could change on the whim of the monarch. And even if it didn't, circumstances would surely change on the monarch's death. However, I find republicanism interesting because the framework can be applied to a whole range of social issues. If you're concerned about domination, specifically the potential of someone to interfere with another, whether or not they actually do so, then you're going to be concerned about a whole range of social issues. The historical conception of marriage, where women had few rights, led to domination. The disproportionate policing of people of colour is dominating. Significant disparities in wealth are dominating. The ability of an employer to fire an employee without due cause is dominating. This doesn't mean that all these relationships must be abolished, but it does mean that strong protections need to be implemented to ensure that the weaker party is well treated, not through goodwill or charity. But by right.
0: So, what was it that inspired your interest in philosophical republicanism?
1: I took a third year philosophy course called Political Philosophy, and one of the topics we looked at was the function and purpose of punishment for criminal behaviour. One of the readings we did was a series of extracts from Pettit and Braithwaite's Not Just Desserts, a republican theory of criminal justice. It blew me away. I was so excited I couldn't stop talking about it to anyone I could force to listen to me. I was probably quite obnoxious about it, actually. As someone with consequentialist leanings, I've never seen the point of punishing a wrongdoer just because that's what justice demands. The backwards-looking nature of punishing even where it leads to worse outcomes just doesn't compute for me. At the same time, punishment to rehabilitate the offender can easily veer into Orwellian territory. So this book was the first account of criminal justice I'd come across that made sense to me. The central idea to their theory was that crime undermines the subjective sense of security with which people go about their lives. Furthermore, it doesn't just affect the person directly impacted by the crime, but others as well. So, for example... If someone breaks into your house, not only have your property rights been violated, but you will also feel less secure after that event. You might hesitate to purchase expensive things in the future, and you might spend a lot of time in a fearful state worrying about a future break-in. In other words, the crime creates an atmosphere of domination. The choices available to you, and your perception of their attractiveness, has been altered by the crime against you. Importantly... These effects extend to your neighbours as well. Even though they haven't suffered the crime, their subjective sense of security regarding their own property will have been affected, and their perception of the options available to them will also have been altered. The function of a Republican criminal justice system, as I understood Pettit and Braithwaite, is to, as far as possible, Facilitate and, where necessary, restore the subjective sense of security that people need to go about their daily lives. This means addressing criminal behaviour. But importantly, it also means not overextending the powers of the police, because a fear of the police as well as of criminals can affect people's sense of security especially though Pettit and Braithwaite didn't explore this in much detail, members of minorities who are often disproportionately targeted by police. Maximising freedom from domination in the criminal justice sphere necessitates a careful balancing act. Criminal behaviour is dominating and needs to be prevented. But at the same time, the precautions taken to prevent criminal behaviour must not be allowed to become more dominating than the criminal behaviour they seek to prevent. So constant surveillance of the whole population or of ethnic or racial subsets of the population would not be justified, nor would excessive random stop and searches or locking someone up for life just for shoplifting. Also, if you look at the subjective impacts on victims of crime as being an important aspect of what is wrong with criminal behaviour, then punishing the perpetrators becomes less important. Instead... An important consideration is restoring the victim's subjective sense of security as far as possible. This may involve locking up the perpetrator, but it needn't. It might require that the perpetrator provide some form of monetary or material assistance to the victim, or that even if the perpetrator isn't caught, that the victim is provided with some form of support and compensation, and not through charity, but as a right. It would certainly require, for example, that the way that rape cases are handled in court to be changed, since many victims currently find the experience of testifying and being cross-examined to be more traumatic than the rape itself, and this is precisely the opposite of what an approach aimed at restoring the victim would do. I found their approach fascinating and wondered if the concept of maximising freedom from domination could be applied to social rather than legal issues. For my honours year, I decided to try applying a Republican framework to addressing catcalling. I ended up expanding my scope a bit and also looked at issues like fat-shaming, racist remarks and transphobic comments. I called these acts socially polluting acts, or SPAs for short. Now, it has been
0: said that people who catcall, fat-shame, or make racist remarks, are exhibiting mere moral failings.
1: Right. It's a rather mainstream position that being boorish or otherwise offensive is undesirable. And we can look down on a person who behaves that way, but they nevertheless have a right to behave in such a manner. If someone catcalls me on the street, for example, then I can be offended and I can express this fact to him And I can even try and persuade him to behave differently. But I can't expect him to stop. The negative effect such comments might have on me is generally acknowledged as being unfortunate. But it's a price that I must pay, and should pay gladly, for living in a country that values freedom of speech. Do you think that psychological harm can be just as bad as physical harm? I think it can, and I think that liberal theorists like John Stuart Mill have been too quick to dismiss all forms of offence as irrelevant. It's true that a lot of people, especially people in a position of privilege, find any challenge to their views offensive. Obviously, that sort of offence is necessary for the discussion of any number of important issues, and so Mill is right to argue that being merely offensive is not enough to warrant condemnation. However, there's a world of difference between the offence that comes from being disagreed with or having your worldview challenged, and the offence that comes from being dehumanised. Me offending a man by saying, hey, what you just said was sexist, or a gay person offending a sincerely religious person simply by walking down the street hand in hand with their partner, is not on a par with the dehumanising offences that come from, for example, being called a fat slut who deserves to be raped to death, something which is unfortunately a commonplace experience for many women who are active on the internet. While the psychological harm that can stem from some forms of of offence is erased by Mill, most contemporary liberal theorists acknowledge that psychological harm can be a relevant consideration. For example, Judith Jarvis-Thompson agrees that the label of harm can be applied to psychological impairment though not to mere offence. However, the phenomena I was looking at, like non-physical street harassment, would only very rarely lead to psychological impairment. Being catcalled is offensive, annoying, unpleasant, disgusting, but it will not usually cause severe psychological distress leading to impairment. So even when psychological harm is acknowledged as being as bad as, as physical harm, It isn't going to do the work that I needed to, at least not without a significant redefinition of the liberal conception of harm, like someone stepping on your toe than chopping your foot off. And according to liberal political theory, someone who steps on your toe doesn't harm you either. You're listening to Radical Philosophy
0: on 3CR Community Radio and I'm speaking to Lucy Main about philosophical Republicanism. Could you explain about liberal political theory?
1: Liberal political theory is quite a broad area, but the basic idea is that any limit imposed on a person's liberty requires very strong justification. Issues like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and the freedom to live life as one chooses are central issues. According to someone like John Stuart Mill, a hugely important figure in liberal philosophy, interference with these liberties can only be justified to prevent harm to others. And as I already explained, he does not see psychological harm as being relevant, let alone acts that might cause psychological discomfort, but not harm. Many contemporary liberal theorists are more expansive, For example, Joel Feinberg allows that limits can be legitimately imposed on someone's liberties to prevent some cases of egregious offence. However, these approaches aren't going to be able to capture SPAs either. Some people view republicanism as an alternative to liberalism. Others view it as simply a form of liberalism with a strong emphasis on the security of liberties. I sidestepped that debate and argued that at the very least, a Republican understanding of domination could provide an important principle for liberals to consider. After all, all liberals agree that freedom is important, and so the degree to which people feel safe and confident in exercising their freedoms can provide a useful measure of how good that society is. When people are dominated, they cannot enjoy their liberties, irrespective of whether or not more solid barriers to the enjoyment of those liberties exist. So along with the concern for harm and offence, I argued that liberals should be concerned about domination. I then argued that this provides a framework for understanding and addressing socially polluting acts.
0: What is your framework for understanding socially polluting acts
1: in my honors thesis, I proposed that acts like catcalling, fat shaming, and racist remarks that we were discussing earlier can be understood as a form of social pollution, similar to the way physical pollutants contaminate our, our physical environment. To explain SPA's by analogy, I'll I'll borrow an example from Shelley Kagan. Consider a lone factory that emits airborne pollutants as a byproduct of production. When inhaled in sufficient concentrations, this pollutant is toxic to humans. However, this factory has tall chimneys so that the pollutants are carried off by stratospheric winds. By the time the particles of pollutant come back down to near ground level, they are so well dispersed that any individual person will inhale no more than one particle of pollutant from that factory. Even though the pollutant is toxic in sufficient concentrations... The factory isn't harming anyone. Similarly, in a culture where catcalling was not a phenomenon, a single man catcalling a woman passing him by would not be a problem. He'd be offensive and unpleasant, maybe, but able to be shrugged off as of no consequence. The experience would probably be bewildering rather than anything more serious. Now imagine that the polluting factory is joined by thousands of others. Although each factory still has an imperceptible impact on the lives of those who inhale a single toxic particle from that factory, the cumulative effect of all those factories is polluted air that is dangerous for those in the vicinity of the factories. In my thesis, I argued that socially polluting acts like catcalling or fat shaming are similar once they occur in sufficient concentrations, they create a social environment that is polluted for members of those groups that are targeted for such acts. And importantly, the acts I've focused on are not unusual. For example, most women throughout the world have experienced street harassment at some point in their lives, and for many it is a depressingly regular occurrence. Another important factor is that just as knowing that your neighbor's house has been broken into will impact your sense of security even though you have suffered no crime, the knowledge that someone relevantly similar to you has been harassed on the street will impact your subjective sense of security, even in, in the absence of experiencing it yourself. So the effects spread beyond those directly targeted. I also argue that being offended isn't necessary to an act, being an SPA if you're tough and can shake off those acts against you, that doesn't change the fact that those acts still contribute in a negative way to the overall social environment. So to recap, these acts are individually trivial, but their cumulative effect is the creation of a polluted social environment that is detrimental to people's well-being. I argued that even where this social pollution does not lead to harm under a strict liberal definition of harm the way it contributes to domination is nevertheless problematic. So the Republican framework I introduced earlier can be used to capture what is at stake in these socially polluting acts. The social environment created by SPAs doesn't curtail freedom or liberty. It doesn't make walking down the streets or going to the shops a non-option for members of targeted groups. However, it does make those activities less appealing. For example, a woman may take a longer path to work to avoid the construction site where she expects to be catcalled, or she might drive even though she would otherwise prefer to walk in order to avoid probable harassment. So the social environment created by SPAs is dominating. It reduces the value of the freedoms that some people have, and in doing so helps to reinforce existing and problematic patterns of domination and subordination. Understanding SPAs as a form of domination can capture the fact that catcalling or quote-unquote minor racial epithets can adversely affect people who aren't directly targeted. So as I alluded to earlier, learning that your sister or friend experienced gross catcalling in a particular area might make you feel less secure in your freedom to enjoy that area, even though you haven't experienced anything yourself the dominating effects of the polluted environment spread beyond the individual contributing acts. You can therefore be dominated by the mere expectation of being on the receiving end of an SPA without needing to experience that behaviour yourself. Something I think liberal theorists underestimate is the importance of the contributions of other people to living life well. Under a republican framework, Rather than grudgingly accepting limitations on a person's rights and liberties so as to protect the rights and liberties of others, we can instead think about designing a society that promotes the maximal enjoyment of everyone's liberties. Philip Pettit writes that non-domination is the position that someone enjoys when they live in the presence of others and when, by virtue of social design, none of those others dominates them. This social design aspect is important because we must live among other people. Although there are downsides to this, few of us would wish the alternative. Of course, I don't think that the appropriate response to a catcaller is to arrest them. I I agree with the mainstream liberal that such a response would be highly undesirable. However, I think a focus on maximising freedom from domination opens up new avenues for action. For example, when we understand that freedom from domination is a consequence of social design, it becomes potentially appropriate to re engineer our current social design to make our society less dominating. So it might be appropriate, for example, for taxpayer money to be spent on campaigns to change the social norms surrounding the behaviors involved in SPAs, educating people on why they shouldn't behave in these ways and cu- and encouraging others to call out such behaviour when they see it. So do
0: you think that perpetrators really have any idea how much harm they're
1: causing? Again, harm isn't what I'm focusing on. I'm focused on the social environment that such acts contribute to. This social environment... This social environment may be harmful, but even where it isn't harmful according to the strict liberal definition of harm, the dominating effect it has is still problematic and needs to be addressed. Now to answer the spirit of your question, I think that a lot of perpetrators do know about the effects of their actions and just don't care, or even think it's a bonus, but some genuinely believe that it's just a bit of fun. The fact is that people who aren't themselves affected by the polluted social environment don't have to see it. They they just see isolated incidents that can easily be ignored or brushed off and can choose to remain ignorant as to how these incidents work together to affect the people who are targeted. This also applies to people who are neither perpetrators nor members of targeted groups. They are often unsympathetic because all they see is the occasional minor inconvenience, which is totally surmountable, without seeing the way repeated and prolonged exposure to such inconveniences builds up. Do you have any other future study plans in this field? I'll be starting my Master's in Philosophy at Monash soon, but I want to veer in a different direction. I'll be looking at a political approach to addressing how we humans should interact with animals. Spoiler, I'm not a fan of the status quo. I think my wrestling with novel applications of Republican political theory over the last year will inform some of my thinking, but I don't expect to be explicitly drawing on it in the immediate future, though who knows what will happen.
0: And I've been speaking to Lucy Maine about philosophical republicanism.